Hey there. Today's episode features a discussion between a group of early career researchers about their interdisciplinary research on climate gentrification. They'll also share some reflections on the importance of establishing a network with other early career scientists as a way of supporting each other and learning from one another. And I'd really like to echo that sentiment. It's been really important for me, too. Uh, There's some really great stuff in this episode, so stay tuned. Thank you all so much for deciding to be here. And thank you to Stephen Elser for inviting us to um, do this episode of the Future Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Kirby. I'm a PhD candidate at FIU University. um, And I'm actually going to be the host moderator uh, for this podcast um, as we dive into our project Uh, which focuses on climate gentrification, and I have the rest of the team with me here, um, who we're just going to do basically do a basic introduction. And I'm going to start off with an icebreaker question just to break the ice. (laughs) Basically, tell us about the place where you are currently, Um, basically something interesting about the environment. Um, And I can start myself, since I'm currently in Miami, Florida. um, I am you know, and this is sort of apt to the climate gentrification work that we're doing because I'm basically on a coast uh, where not only the issues that we're dealing with water is coming from sea level rise, you know, off the coast for the Atlantic, but we're also dealing with um, the Everglades, you know, situation, you know, to the West. And so that's a very ecological, very interesting ecological combination that I'm currently, we're both currently dealing with. So we can not only, such that we not only have to deal with the issues relating to sea level rise and that impact on land in general, but also water quality, you know, for our drinking water um, in South Florida as it relates to Everglades. And so they have that dual thing happening. Um, And so I'm gonna let Kelsey um, take off to introduce herself and her ecological icebreaker. Great. Thanks, Tim. So I'm Kelsey Best. I'm a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt University in environmental science. So I'm calling from Nashville, Tennessee, which something I learned is Nashville's actually in a basin of Ordovician limestone, which means that Nashville used to be a shallow tropical sea. So we have all these cool fossils of like corals and little sea critters, even though we're inland now. So I just think it's kind of a cool reminder of, you know, historical sea level rise and really the power of the climate. Um, And then also Nashville's a a growing city right now and is experiencing a lot of just general gentrification and some of those, those growing pains. So that's a little bit of the perspective I bring from the place that I come from. Um, and I'll pass it over to Osmo. Thank you so much, Kelsey Best. And also thanks to team for anchoring this great episode of this podcast. And I'm Asmal Hussain. I'm a PhD student in sociology and also a national research trainee in interdisciplinary training, education and research in food, energy and water systems at Colorado State University. And uh, I'm originally from Bangladesh. I think uh, all of you know Bangladesh is uh, one of the uh, worst victim countries for global climate change located in the South Asian region. But currently I'm uh, living in Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, uh, a beautiful city 
and uh, uh, adjacent to the uh, rocky mountain uh, uh, which is which is one of the uh, beautiful place for visit and uh, the city is growing as kelsey uh, talked about her own city but uh, the city has a lot of issues uh, in terms of uh, uh, climate change adaptation sustainability and also uh, other issues and uh, as an outcome of this uh, sustainable activities happening in the cities uh, there are a lot of issues related to gentrification uh, the people especially the people of color who have been living historically in the cities in different neighborhoods they are uh, getting displaced uh, due to the uh, activities uh, happening for climate change adaptation and sustainable aspects and another uh, big concern of this city is uh, city is uh, air quality uh, because the city is surrounded by the regions where you will find uh, the highest number of fracking industries uh, in the us and uh, you know uh, in the fracking industries there are a lot of chemicals are being used which has a uh, uh, lot of contributions uh, in uh, polluting air and also water available in this region so despite this fact uh, i love this city and uh, i'm happy to be here and uh, i would like to request becca to go forward thanks asmal my name is becca nixon and i'm a postdoctoral researcher at purdue university working with illinois indiana sea grant um so i'm currently located in west lafayette indiana and um fairly different than one of the bigger cities like Nashville or some Miami. I'm surrounded by corn and soy soybean fields, um, which are currently being harvested now. So you see lots of combines going down the road. <laughs> um, and with that production um, comes issues associated that, with that around soil health and water quality issues um, and those pressures on our natural resources as we produce large volumes of, um, of those crops. But they're grown here because we have lots of fertile soil here um, in the Midwestern region. And so originally um, it was prairie land, right? With lots of tall grass prairies, um, super healthy loam soils. Um, so that's the ecological context that I'm coming from. I grew up in Detroit, um, so a very different part of the Midwest than um, West Lafayette, Indiana, where there's um, gentrification occurring, as well as a lot of development work around um, around revitalizing those neighborhoods. So happy to be here and um, hear from all of you. And I'll pass it on to Zainab. Thank you, Becca. Hello, everyone. This is Zainab Josie. I'm a PhD candidate at North Carolina State University. Uh, currently, I'm living in Raleigh, North Carolina. Raleigh is famous as Oak City. It's a very pretty city to be in there, and I'm really happy, and I really enjoy my time here. Uh, in general, North Carolina and specifically its capital, Raleigh, is growing very fast and there are a lot of uh, uh, people that are coming here seeking more uh, job in, in industries, uh, mostly IT industry that is growing here and it causes a more problem regarding the housing and affordable housing. So it created a gentrification in general, a big problem here in uh, North Carolina as a state, at the coastal area of the North Carolina, and also in Raleigh. Uh, thank you. I'm going to ask Richard to introduce himself to us. Thank you, Zainab. Yeah, so uh, my name is Richard Nyao, and I'm a PhD 
I'm a PhD candidate in the University of Guelph in, in Canada. So like when now I'm now uh, based in Guelph. So Guelph is like one of the centers in Canada. I mean, I mean one of the inner is having a lot of Pamela. So like if you just drive one kilometer from my house, you see a lot of farmland like maize fields, uh, soybean and stuff like that. So it's just so, so Guelph is considered like the, uh, the, the, the farming hub of uh, the Canada with so many farmlands and research. So, so uh, mostly what would be your, uh, as, as, uh, and do yeah, uh, it's just like but uh, to spend time like I mean, so we have many scientists students trying to really find out to increase production, like in terms of animal production, crop production. So that's one of the main. So yeah, you just mostly find uh, too many students around because it's like the hub, like it's just like a central university focusing on farmland. So that is just a little bit about golf, but it's also a very beautiful town of just one hundred and thirty thousand people, and it's very located. Like it is, it is. It's very friendly, very nice people. So I will encourage anybody if you have the time to come to Guelph whenever you are in, a, in Canada. Thank you. I'll pass it over to uh, Sharif. Thank you, Richard. So this is Sharif Islam, and I'm a PhD candidate in geospatial and environmental analysis at Virginia Tech. So for doing that, I'm living at the city named Blacksburg in Virginia. But originally, I am from Bangladesh. And as Asmal mentioned, Asmal is from also from Bangladesh, too. So as I mentioned, like the city I'm living is Blacksburg. It's a very beautiful city located near the Appalachian mountain. And uh, next to Blacksburg, there is a river that is actually one of the oldest river in the world, but the name is New River. So, so, so that is interesting. Like the name is New River, but it's one of the oldest, I think third oldest river in the world. So I like this area. It's very beautiful, mountainous, there is rivers and all these things like trees and forests. I like everything in this city. So the only issue I see in this city is like the housing price is growing, going up. So when I came here back in 2018, after, and after that, after three years, the housing price has increased by like around 30% or 25%. So that is the only issue I see in this city. And other than that, it's a beautiful city for living and you know working here. So I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you everyone for introducing yourself. Um, just based off of what you've been saying, like there's the diversity of the different types of topography and the issues that, you know, um, especially gentrification pressures that each one of our areas are um, facing, you know, whether or not it is related to just overall development and or um, pressures related to climate um, and climate change. Um, is definitely one that, you know, can tie in to what we're going to talk about today, um, which is um, as a team, you know, we worked on um, and we're still working on um, climate gentrification. Um, but before we dive into that specific topic of, you know, climate gentrification, um, I wanted to ask and specifically Kelsey, just to start out, you know, how we came up with the project. Yeah, I'm happy to try to provide kind of a brief history of how we got here. So our project is sponsored by SUSINC, as everyone here knows, but it's the National Socio-Environmental Synthesis Center out of uh, University of Maryland. And so thinking back, I guess maybe two years ago, I guess quite a few of us met at a workshop that SUSINC was hosting around um, information for these graduate pursuit projects, which are really focused on getting teams 
of graduate students from different institutions and different disciplines together to design and implement a cool independent research project related to coupled human natural systems. Um, so a bunch of us met at that workshop and I think it was very motivating to try to put together our own proposal. Um, the team kind of grew a little bit from there kind of organically through you know, professional connections. And, you know, I, I'm really proud of the team that we ended up with because I think the introduction shows, you know, we have seven of us with seven very different backgrounds and disciplines and perspectives. Um, so specifically, you know, I think how we landed on climate gentrification was a little bit windy as well and really stemmed from just a lot of conversations between our team, a lot of trial and error. We had some different ideas originally. Um, and I think we, you know, it's cool to, again to see our backgrounds because it makes a lot of sense now how we did end up on climate gentrification and, you know, put that proposal together, sent it off to succinct. We're, we're lucky to be selected. And now I guess we've been working on it for about, about a year and a half now. Yeah, and to your point, Kelsey, like I think that, you know, as we started to formulate this group, like I feel that each one of us had our own like sort of personal or professional like motivations for um, wanting to do this work. Um, I can pretty much say that like my, you know, personal and professional like motivation um, obviously was I was looking into this and um, an interesting story is that I was um, talking actually to Kelsey's um, advisor at her university because uh, he and I are working on a different project <laughs> um, that's funded by the National Science Foundation. And I think I was even mentioning to him on a bus ride to our meeting about the topic of me being in um, interested in climate gentrification. And he mentioned that he had a graduate student who was working on that. And, you know, that was just basically because of our conversations that I was having regarding Miami. You know, basically Miami being number one in the world, you know, in terms of assets vulnerable to sea level rise. And, you know, a lot of what was happening in the popular media was just, you know, people talking about displacement as it relates to sea level rise. And, you know, that was a personal motivation because though I'm not from Miami, one of the places or one of the reasons why I chose to do my research here was because I thought that, you know, as an emerging global city, Miami was, you know, a very apt place to do research related to um, water issues whether it's related to water quality, but also issues related to a climate, uh, changing climate. So not only from a professional standpoint of understanding Miami as a very ripe ground where I feel that I could um, not only really get my feet wet in terms of understanding the uh, human and um, natural components of, you know, um, climate change, but also, you know, to know that this is a place that I'm living, that I'm going to be living for the next couple of years. And, you know, I would want to see myself, you know, engaged in the communities and the areas in which I am living. And so those are my, you know, personal and professional motivations for this. Um, Osmo, like what were your um, specific like motivations for choosing? Because as I understand, you were part of that workshop 
with Kelsey. Am I correct? Yeah, definitely. I, I was a, a part of the project from the very beginning with Kelsey, Sharif, uh, Joynab, and uh, Richard, and then you and Becca uh, joined later. Uh, but uh, the question is very important for me uh, because being a sociology student, uh, we always uh, try to focus on our own positionality, like how, how our own social positionality determines our uh, career path or research interest. So as I mentioned earlier, that I'm from Bangladesh, uh, which is one of the uh, vulnerable countries in terms of uh, global climate change because of its geographical location. So uh, Bangladesh is a low-lying country located in the Ganges, Brahmaputra, and uh, Magna Delta, which is the world's largest and mostly densely populated delta in the world. And you will find every aspect of climatic events. You will find floods, droughts, riverbank erosion, cyclones, and mostly, most importantly, sea level rise. 80% of the country's land are uh, like uh, floodplain. So sea level is, is a big issue in, in Bangladesh. And climatic events like floods, riverbank erosion, and uh, drought, and uh, although I'm not from coastal region, uh, so these events are, are, are my own living experiences. So when uh, we came up with the uh, project, uh, on climate gentrification, I, I instantly uh, decided to involve in this project because I, I found that uh, uh, it is it is uh, it would be like a part of my own life experience, and from that point, uh, it is my personal motivation and uh, definitely from a professional motivations perspective. Uh, you know, one of uh, our uh, external mentor, Dr. Joshua Sbika. Uh, he's from our sociology uh, department at Colorado State University, and he has been uh, working in gentrification, especially specifically connecting uh, gentrification with food insecurity. So I took a couple of classes uh, with him, and I also worked uh, with him as a uh, teaching uh, assistant in food injustice class. And uh, uh, with these experiences, uh, working with him, uh, focusing on uh, food insecurity and gentrification. So I found that uh, this project would be a great uh, experience for me. And uh, these are the uh, professional motivations for me. And so Richard, I remember like you're the only person who's not based in the US. Yeah. And so what I find like, very interesting for you is that, you know, from the context of climate gentrification, you know, I don't know, was this something like where, where did your motivations come from, especially since like from a U.S. perspective, we tend to take a very U.S. centric approach to this. <laughs> yes, you know, that, that, that's what we're trying. And that's why I wanted to like mention Shimon. So the point is when we met uh, at Mr. Singh, where we're all seen, uh, I mean, uh, talking about food, energy, water, person, project, like so, so that was our like initial like, the same idea. Like we're all trying how to write people about food, water, energy. But, but, but now the point, but now with time, Kesh just come up with this wonderful idea. And also like my own research is mostly on anything environmental change, how, like how people respond to anything, um, anything environmental change. So I was like, oh, they stayed in line. So it would be, it'll be good for me to just join this project, learn more. But it was my first time even doing the word, um, climate, uh, stuff like that. Yeah, climate and gentrification. So I was like, oh, since we are all, uh, <laughs> 
as a researcher, it would be a nice um, chance for me to be able to learn this new concern. And I also work with a team of medicine diverse people to be able to learn these new skills and then learn. So that's how I just ended up joining the project and be able to push more into that. But our initial idea was just more into food, water, energy. Then we now switch into climate identification, which is something that is really affecting so many people and so many communities. So it is something really selling now, pressing now. So I still have to good way to also contribute. So that's why I, I didn't kind of join into the project. And Zainab, like, what was your, since you're the other person who was involved <laughs> in that workshop? <laughs> yeah, I was uh, one of the earlier, like, yeah, I was at the beginning of the workshop with Kelsey and Asmal Sharif and Richard. And uh, I think it's a very interesting question. And I have a kind of a strong personal feeling toward this project because as you know, and know our listener will know, I started my PhD program here as a research assistant for a project conducted on Johns Island in South Carolina. So I was working there for like one and a half year. And uh, the project was about um, participatory mapping of cultural ecosystem services. So I was in workshop and we asked people, uh, like John Islanders about the places that they value uh, and they feeling like um, uh, they had that a strong feeling of sense of place to those areas. So I was engaged with this discussion that uh, these uh, coastal areas on the East Coast are facing a lot of uh, very fast cultural change and there are different drivers of this change and climate change is one of those drivers. It's not the only, but it's one of the most important and one of the drivers. So as a researcher, I was interested to dive deeper in this topic and learn more about this. So working with uh, very nice people like you all and also a topic that I'm interested, I really uh, like to do this and from professional or also personal, it's again, the same thing. And the perspective is I was really looking um, for an opportunity to develop my uh, team working skills and somehow leadership skills during my PhD. So later when I'm going to be a early career researcher, uh, I have more ability and uh, I can get some transferable skills to have with myself for later. I came to the project because I didn't mention yet, but my research dissertation research is actually about coastal erosion in Bangladesh. So I know like how people in the coastal Bangladesh actually impacted by different issues, issues like coastal erosion floods and others, though I only study coastal erosion. So from that perspective, I was actually interested to work on something coastal. So when we were at Sesink, we actually had like, like in our mind that we need to work on something that is actually coastal. So that was the main thing to come up with this project like we developed, right? So I didn't know much about gentrification, but I knew about climate change and, and how coastal, coastal communities are impacted all over the world. So that's why like I ended up like working together with other others, I think like, I mean, other group members. This is Becca. And I think I was really excited when I um, first heard about this project because I think personally and professionally, I'm just really interested in, as I think many of us are, how 
climate change can continue to threaten the people who are most vulnerable and the places that are most vulnerable, as you've heard from all these contexts of research that we all work in. And when I heard about the climate gentrification project, I started reading about it and it seemed like a new emerging topic where we hadn't really fully understood how it was impacting cities um, through sea level rise and other extreme weather events. So it seemed really exciting. And it has been really exciting to look at this new topic and um, apply all of our understandings about climate change to um, a new context for a lot of us or a new situation. Um, so yeah, that drew me personally and professionally, honestly, to try and think about how cities can better adapt and um, be more equitable in their planning processes. And like Zainab was saying as well, it's it's been really valuable to me to learn from this team of honestly experts in their own fields and come together to apply all of our knowledge and skills and experiences to teach each other um, and learn from each other. Um, and this interdisciplinary work has been super valuable for me to learn from their perspectives and their expertise. Yes, and definitely Becca, like as you mentioned, and um, I think as all of us have touched on, um, is the fact that, you know, we come from many different areas of expertise, you know, and we all found that this particular project happened to touch each an area of our expertise, but we also found that it could, you know, help us develop our own, you know, personal or professional, you know, goals. Um, but to focus on, you know, that understanding of us being from different, you know, disciplines, you know, it, as we get into this new chapter or this new um, wave of, you know, academic research, you know, one of the big things that, you know, everyone focuses on, or everyone talks about now is called like interdisciplinary or transdisciplinary research, you know, um, and I think that, you know, if I made that from the start that we knew from the very beginning how we wanted to design this project, you know, around this concept of interdisciplinarity. Um, so I guess my question to the to the group is, you know, what does this concept of interdisciplinary research, you know, mean to us? And how does it, how did it, you know, contribute to our work and the process that we did and, you know, for this process of focusing on, you know, climate gentrification? Well, uh, I'm not sure that I mentioned this earlier or not, but my PhD research currently is about uh, exploring the association between natural resources and food security in sub-Saharan Africa. At the first glance, it looks that there is no association between my PhD research and this project that I'm involved in, uh, which is climate gentrification. But from my perspective, uh, they are generally very close to each other. They are very similar. And honestly, in practice, I borrowed many things from uh, each one of these projects in my work. Uh, to be more specific, for example, in uh, design research state, uh, uh, thinking about the scale and thinking about that at different scales, we will identify different patterns in socioeconomic uh, systems. It's something that shared in both topic that I'm working, climate gentrification and food security and natural resources. Another example is when uh, we think about theoretical approach that 
in the theoretical approach of coupled human natural system, uh, this climate gentrification uh, work helped me to, uh, how to say, it, how to have a better understanding of the importance of concept of vulnerability and how vulnerability is really important when we are working in coupled human natural system. For example, when floods happen, floods will damage the house in coastal area and also floods damage the crop. So it causes food insecurity. And the thing is this flood uh, frequency will increase by climate change. And if you are vulnerable before this flood, this flood will hit you harder. So it will damage you more harder. So, uh, you know, you see, it's although the story is different, but the heart of the thing is the same. So being vulnerable uh, in coupled human natural system is very, very important thing that working in this group helped me to think about this more critically in my own research. And final thing is about the method. You know, there are lots of methods, quantitative, qualitative, participatory, this new like machine learning things or a special analysis thing. I think I learned some new methods from this group and I could maybe add a little from the method that I use in my work. And also about the, the literature review, I always conducted literature review individually. So what I did was mostly manual. But in this group, I learned that there are some other ways that we can use software and machine can help us to conduct literature review. So it was extremely helpful for me to develop my intellectual ability and my research ability and skills. May I add something? Yeah, yeah, please. And as I mentioned earlier that uh, I've been working as a, as a national research trainee at uh, interdisciplinary training, education, and research in food, energy, and water systems. It's a, a four-year-long uh, NSF-funded graduate training program where uh, the fellows uh, are getting uh, intensive and uh, hands-on training on system-level thinking. And from this training, I've been uh, learning that uh, a couple human and natural systems in the 21st century uh, are, are requiring uh, interdisciplinary uh, solutions uh, to solve the problems. And uh, from our project's perspective, I think uh, climate change uh, is a super uh, wicked problem, we, we can say, uh, because uh, its causes are multiple and complex. Its impacts are uncertain and interrelated. And also, the potential solutions of climate change may generate new problems for the society. And uh, in, in our project, we have been uh, examining that how climate change adaptation uh, programs can generate uh, new problems like gentrification. So from that uh, perspective, I think uh, uh, our project is, uh, 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 is, a, is a suitable example on where we can put uh, our own uh, expertise from uh, different uh, uh, disciplinary perspective. And it's a great combination in this project. I, I have been learning in, in the last uh, more than one years. Yeah, so I would like to add something after Ajmal and Jainab. I completely agree what you guys said. But one thing I would like to mention, like in my opinion, interdisciplinary research is more about like say, we are seven people from seven different backgrounds, right? So we are combining our 
views and opinions to a specific goal that is actually climate gentrification we are starting here so as already asmal and jana mentioned climate gentrification is a very complex problem it has different actors and factors so to address this issue we need to actually we needed to actually come up with like interdisciplinary minded people from different backgrounds and and views and opinions so that actually helped us actually figuring out like how like climate gentrification is actually impacted like coastal communities yeah i think everyone's raised some really good points and you know it sounds like we're all very motivated and you know understand that for these really complicated questions like climate impacts and climate gentrification you know we need to draw upon the best methods and perspectives from different disciplines but i just wanted to acknowledge that it's hard to do interdisciplinary work right like it's not really for the faint of heart and i think this team for me provided like a very supportive kind of safe environment to really get into the nitty gritty of interdisciplinary work and work through the challenges of you know us you know maybe having different definitions of terms and thinking about things differently and grappling with what that actually means to combine those perspectives because i think you know tim you're you're absolutely right that the concept of interdisciplinary work is growing and people are starting to recognize how important it is but i think that's very different from actually doing it you know and we've been given this opportunity to really do interdisciplinary work yes i would definitely agree with you um you know to the point that i have seen like projects that have you know started as interdisciplinary but by just including you know different people from different disciplines but you know from the very beginning they didn't design the project itself you know around you know interdisciplinary work it was sort of like we have this project here let's just add all of these people to sort of figure out how they can fit into it um and that sort of brings me to like my next question because you know i felt like from this process and actually being in this process one of the thing or in this project one of the things that i very much um saw was from the very beginning like we designed the project around our team and around what we just like before our personal professional motivations and so we took our expert different expertises <laughs> and you know tried to figure out how can we get at this very complex problem you know um, of climate gentrification around our areas of emerging expertise and so what i wanted to sort of like get go through was just from basically start to finish because we did this in sort of like two different ways you know from designing the team to then after designing the team and figuring out what we wanted to try to figure out okay so what sort of analyses that we can do you know in order to pull each of our different strengths that could bring us together and I can mention like two of the things that we did was we had very specific like a literature review, which we went into that um, process of figuring out what the literature is about, but then also the other like quantitative analysis portion of it and trying to figure that out. And so I just opened the floor to try to see like 
how did you, how did this whole interdisciplinary process work for you? Or how did you see it working? You know, either from that um, lit review process, you know, to the actual quantitative process where we did sort of like a, that clustering analysis um, that I believe Zaynab that you mentioned before, like where did you see that sort of interdisciplinary work happen? So I'll, I'll jump in with some thoughts kind of thinking back to the beginning of the project. Um, I think you're right. We designed it around, we designed the project around all of our different strengths and different perspectives. And part of that work before we even started writing a grant was getting to know each other and like kind of building a personal relationship, you know, so we could understand what each of us was bringing to the table. And so just the, some of the specific examples of things that we did that I think worked really well and, you know, took time away from what people might consider the, the research, but were worthwhile are, you know, we came together and made a team agreement at the beginning. So we laid out very clearly our expectations, how we wanted to work together and communicate with each other. Um, and then we all signed off on that. So we were starting from a space of coming together and, you know, really being on the same page. And then also we spent a lot of time making our um, boundary object, which is something I did not know anything about before succinct, but, you know, a figure, a diagram that we built together that laid out the different dimensions of our project and how our different expertise was interacting together. So with our agreement and our, our visual object of the project, we kind of had a really good launching point, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, actually following up Kelsey note, I want to say that interdisciplinary work is complex. And as Tim mentioned, uh, we can get lost in the middle of things. But one thing that we had in our mind that the, uh, since the beginning, and we tried to keep it alive during the entire project was, we are not just thinking about the final result and the final um, output of this project, but we, all of us did, come, did uh, uh, take care a lot about the process because the process by itself is very important. And it was very important for us to make sure that uh, there is uh, enough safe space for everyone individually and professionally to talk about their concern, to bring up the topic that they feel is important. And none of us had any judgmental attitude or there was no hostile environment. So all of us intentionally try to provide this an environment that is welcoming and everyone feel acknowledged, respected. And, um, uh, you know, it's uh, maybe it's not really related to this uh, interdisciplinary work, but in diversity inclusion, they said diversity is that different people. Inclusion is that different people feel uh, accepted and respected and they feel that they are acknowledged as a part of the team. And I wanna say that we always actively try to work toward this and actively all of us during all our meeting, that was a lot of meeting. We had many bi-weekly meetings during these two years. And I believe that seven of us had this mindset that the process is important 
an inclusion of different narrative, different perspective, different disciplines are very important. And this is not that we are just looking for a like a final result or publication. We all care about the process. Process does matter a lot. Yeah, and I would say to your point, Zainab, and I'm asking like if, if you agree that you know the process was sort of like um and it's it's in the literature a lot when you're doing interdisciplinary work that it that it has to be iterative meaning that you know it's not just you know one and done you know when you're talking about the process you came to we have different level of expertise so it may be one aspect of the research but you know through our meetings you know we may have thought okay this is the right way to go but then the next time we met you know someone was just like i was actually looking at this and you know, why don't we include this part? Or, you know, there's certain things, I'm not feeling comfortable about this because there's this aspect of it that I don't think we're necessarily touching on. Um, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, and so I would say that that is a sort of like, is that the sort of like iterative process that you're, or the process that you're mentioning where our expertise allowed us to sit back and to feel comfortable, especially within the safe space to be like, well, my ex my emerging expertise is, you know, this is an aspect of the natural and human, you know, coupled system that, you know, needs to be explored. And this is a context in which we can explore that. But yeah. first of all, creating that space in order for that work to happen. Yeah, it's very, very important. Totally, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would just say, Asma, like from your perspective, or because since you're from the sociology department, like, is there something that you can speak to, you know, in regards to that process, especially as Zaina mentioned, you know, um, creating the space? And I know you mentioned earlier that, you know, from the point of, of a sociologist is, you know, positioning where you are within the context of everything that is going on. So I would say that from your perspective, how did you see yourself, you know, within the work that you do, you know, and how did you apply that sort of thinking as a sociologist, you know, um, and from your training, you know, in your approach, either through any one of the different aspects of the project or just in overall in the project itself? Yeah, thanks, team, again, uh, for, for asking the questions. And uh, I, I really feel proud that uh, I'm, I'm a part of this interdisciplinary group. The issue is that, uh, which is important to me, that uh, although we are from uh, seven different uh, disciplinary uh, background, but uh, I, I feel that we have a common uh, research interest uh, among all of us, and which is like uh, uh, human uh, nature interaction. And from that uh, uh, point of view, as I mentioned earlier, that in order to work uh, successfully in an interdisciplinary dream, that we need to contribute from our own uh, disciplinary perspective. For say, for example, uh, I have the uh, environmental justice is one of my uh, primary research interests. And uh, from my training, graduate training on environmental justice from theoretical and methodological point of view, I, I felt that uh, I have uh, such a background where I can contribute, how climate gentrification are generating uh, uh, environmental injustice in the coastal uh, region. And also uh, another thing that what I learned, say for example, I don't have any background in machine learning or even uh, GIS or remote sensing. And uh, I, I, I feel that uh, 
Kelsey uh, did uh, the machine learning uh, stuffs in our project. Uh, Joinab and uh, Sharif uh, were heavily contributing in like uh, developing map GIS maps and also uh, uh, the mapping analysis. But so I learned a lot uh, from them uh, being a part of, of, of this interdisciplinary project. But as I mentioned earlier, that uh, uh, throughout this process, uh, from my expertise on uh, environmental justice, I have been contributing on uh, what are the theoretical and methodological contribution uh, in, in studying climate gentrification, focusing on how climate gentrification are generating environmental injustice. And one of the people that I worked, like two of the people that I actually worked really close with, you know, especially when it came to the lit review, were Becca and Richard. Um, and so I would actually ask Becca, you know, specifically in Richard, specifically when it came to the lit review process, like how did you um, see yourself involved? Like what are the things that you, um, that you felt like that you can contribute like from your own area of expertise that you thought that could definitely help move the, the project along? Okay, uh, thanks, team. So, like, uh, with Zenap and Miko, like, shared very nice points. You know, working in a whole diverse team, like, we have so many experts on on board. But the point, what I'm learned is that at one point you find maybe your own skills missing in the weeds, like you are just lost in the weeds because maybe your skills is not really dead at that point in time. You know, so but the, but the point is, since the goal is to get the paper uh, or to publish or to have a fine work done, you have to allow those who understand the work lead the process, you know. So although you are this is part of, I mean, part of the of the team, but you just have to like okay, at this point in time, my own expertise and skills is not really needed, but maybe it might be needed some somewhere along the line, you know. So but the point is you have to have that courage and that grace in you to just let the process go, you know, like those who you think understand the work. So that was one very key um, point. Because for example, I'm a human geographer, although uh, I'm in geography, but I am more into the human side of things. But the point is if you are doing things like machine learning. There is no way I've never learned those skills, right? And now the person, whoever does the analysis on understands some of those facts. And coming back to our lead team, at least we all, like in the beginning, planned the whole studies, did all the analysis. But the point is, as the time goes on, there were more people who had more skills to conceptualize it, come up with the boundary object, a certain framework. So, so you have to just let the process lead itself, like those who understand what the goal is just to have a fine piece end of the day. It is not just having your own personal point, I mean, I mean goals, but then, having the whole team succeed and then trying to make their own voice where it, where it is needed. Giving, like, I can't remember to um, feeding those who are leading the process, giving them the courage and the energy and, and the motivation. I, I saw that like one skills that I've learned so much. Yeah. So that was how I could explain for now. Maybe Becca will share more. Yeah, this might not be specific to the lit review, but it does apply. But I think this team has really been able to work well together in, um, getting access to data and combining data sources, right? So part of this thing project is we only use secondary data. We don't do any primary data collection. Um, and one of the awesome things is that there's tons of data out there, both um, in census data, environmental spatial data, and then there's lots of existing literature on topics related to climate gentrification. And, but if you've ever done research like this, you know that that data can be really difficult to handle or know how to process, know how to clean. Um, so whether it was for the clustering analysis paper or the literature review paper, I think all of us were able to come together and say, oh, I know how to work with this data source. I know how to clean this. I know how to analyze this. Um, and 
one person could not do all of that. So it was really cool to see the team come together to bring all of this data together because there's so much data out there to help us better understand this process, but it can just be difficult and time consuming to manage and navigate. So both for the lit review, looking at existing papers and what they're talking about in gentrification to try and synthesize that work to better understand climate aspects or the clustering analysis. We just brought, we're able to bring a lot in um, to this picture because just like we were talking about, it's a wicked problem. There are lots of aspects to it. And so I think we were able to touch on a lot of those aspects because of um, the breadth of our team and the ability to work with a lot of data sources. Just gonna like just switch gears just a little bit because I know we were talking a lot about the process, um, but I want to sort of like get into like the actual like work that we did because <laughs> we did do a lot of it and as we spoke to like a lot of it was very iterative very um you know it allowed us to get to a place where you know we felt comfortable um with the results that we produced um and though like we're currently in the process of um, submissions and acceptance into academic journals. Um, I do kind of want to get into, you know, some of the work that we did find um, and how, you know, through the process of that work um, or the methods that we used, you know, that we got to these answers. And so one of the things that um, I wanted to get at is basically the outcomes of that project that we had, but I want to couch it like specifically within you know, two of the main things that right now that we've done, uh, one being the lit review, the literature review paper that we are currently with, is currently within review. So it has not been accepted yet. Fingers crossed, you know, as academics, we, you know, <laughs> have faith that our work is, is going to be out there. It's going to be out there. It's there. It's going to be out there. Um, and it's going to find a home and it's going to be the best thing that ever <laughs> that ever came out we're going to be at the top of our game like this is going to be absolutely amazing um but one of the things that i wanted i personally wanted to speak about you know uh, in terms of like what i've learned through the lit review paper that um we did um was i think that like as we all mentioned like a lot of the process a lot of these different methods I have written personally a lit review, um, <laughs> like, but I have never actually for for classes. But I've never actually written a lit review for actual submission into a journal. I've written, I've read lit reviews, <laughs> and so one of the things that I wanted to like mention specifically when it came to when I when we as a team was trying to come up with designing methods and designing a process for a lit review was my sort of thinking, you know, in terms of like trying to make it as quantitative as possible. And, you know, that whole thing, that whole thing, it pushed it, it of course, like I was hoping to have the things done. And I doubt that I'm trying to figure out like how many actual researchers get their papers done on the deadline that they set for themselves. <laughs> Zero percent. <laughs> <laughs> because what I found is that like, because I was so focused on trying to like make it as quantitative as possible, because I knew that within the context of 
um, academic journals and where they're going with with literature reviews, um, that it is less likely for them to accept a paper that is very qualitative in terms of like us, you know, just based on what we've read, this is what we found. And so that process, and um, as some of us was mentioning, like I did this, I used this uh, process called automated content analysis, where basically what it did was it took all the papers that we um, that we found, you know, either through automated systems of trying to figure out or trying to focus and find papers and to be able to synthesize through machine learning, what are the concepts or what are the themes that are brought out from that? Um, and that sort of process was, was very much something that I could, you know, pull from. And like through that process, like what I did found what I did find was that these intellectual threads, you know, because even though we were focusing on specifically climate gentrification, there were other topics such as green gentrification, such as environmental gentrification, such as ecological gentrification, that in our original, you know, foray into understanding what climate gentrification is for on the East Coast, like we found that there were other terms that were also related. And then through our analysis, we were able to pull not only, you know, that sort of like um, idea and those specific and those specific things and terms that um, are related to one of one another, but also in doing another analysis, which is R, <laughs> doing, a, doing a, another analysis, a bibliometrics analysis, I was able to trace. Um, excuse me, we were able to trace like the intellectual trajectory of these topics. And that's what I found that was most interesting, how I can point to very specific papers that allowed us to be able to see, oh, so, you know, these ideas don't exist in a vacuum. You know, these ideas, and as researchers, we always, when we read something, we're influenced by that. But to be able to quantitatively explain, you know, in a paper that there are intellectual threads between these different concepts, and therefore, you know, share um, and into or should be a part of, if anything, the same intellectual body of knowledge. Um, and so I wanted to ask Becca, uh, excuse me, um, I'm sorry, Kelsey, what did you learn, you know, from doing the clustering analysis? And, you know, was there anything that was sort of surprising to you? Or why was it important for you to even choose that specific method? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for talking about the lit review process, too, because I think the two pieces of the project, the literature review and the, the clustering analysis that I'll get into, I think they fit really well together. And I love that the literature review allowed us to synthesize the knowledge, draw those intellectual threads in a way that I think could be a real contribution to the topic of climate gentrification. And then I think the clustering analysis paper was then meant to apply some of what we had learned from the existing literature and push some of those methods and conceptualizations even further to make that that contribution. I guess a little bit about you know the paper and how we decided to use the methods that we did is um, my 
research group at Vanderbilt has done some past research on general gentrification. So gentrification in Nashville, not related to climate change or environmental impacts. And that was conducted by a master's student, David Knorr. And he really came up with the idea of using a unsupervised machine learning clustering approach which is a fancy way of saying the researcher does not define what gentrification looks like or what the outcome is expected to look like. So there's no defining thresholds of this is gentrification or this is not gentrification. You really give the machine the data that you have and it, you know, without the researcher in position will identify like groups within the data. So David Knorr, used this machine learning algorithm on general gentrification with the idea that it could reduce some of that researcher bias in these definitions, in these thresholds, and really just see what's happening from patterns in the data, see how we can interpret that and what it might say. He kind of showed that that approach was useful for general gentrification. So I think the idea was, how can we then extend it to climate gentrification? the most time intensive and the hardest part, like Becca was kind of getting at, was bringing in these different data sets and even deciding what data to include and what not to include. But we really honed in on, okay, so we need social indicators because we know the the social dimensions are important. So things like poverty, um, racial demographics, education level. We know that we also need the climate side of climate gentrification. So what are the relevant climate impacts and data? So we pulled in Sharif's expertise on coastal erosion. We looked at FEMA reported flood damages and a couple other indicators. And then of course, with gentrification, housing is extremely important. So we used that to motivate some different housing data related to median property values, rent values, you know, tenancy, that kind of thing. And it it really was iterative with that data and then applying the algorithms to the data and kind of just seeing what emerged. And I think, you know, that paper is also in review and fingers crossed that it'll be out there soon. So I won't I won't spoil it too much. But I think, you know, we have demonstrated the importance of having all of these different indicators and also the power of those machine learning methods to reveal, you know, across a a wide scale of the East Coast of the United States, how these things might be interacting. So if anything, it's made me just like have a million more questions related to climate gentrification and want to do a bunch of different analysis and keep working on these questions. But I think, I like to think we kind of have a good start. Yeah. And I would say like, to your point, like, and this is open form for any of us, because I think I've mentioned, you know, some of the outcomes that came from the lit review process when it came to the intellectual threads, you know, from these different concepts when we were only focusing on climate gentrification and it caused us to include these other terms within that because we found that it was such a strong intellectual thread, not only from our own, um, qualitative assessment, but quantitatively we found it as well. Um, so to sort of like get back to the clustering analysis, like what were you know some of the findings that um, we 
like ended up finding like in this for the clustering analysis paper that you know i would say really speaks to that sort of speaks to the importance of our work you know especially since you know some of the arguments are that um gentrification is a place specific context but we decided to take this very place specific you know phenomena and apply it across an entire region you know the entire east coast you know what are the implications you know of like what we did and why would you say that is important we know we've gotten maybe some pushback at times about the choices that we made along the way of the scale um but these are you know these are choices that every research question has to make so we chose the large geographic scale we chose a specific time window to look at these processes but i think really at this point of climate gentrification research it's still an open question as to what spatial and temporal scales these things are existing across you know we don't really know so i think our contribution beyond some of the place-based approaches which i think are super important is to zoom out and look at a different scale see you know yes we know that gentrification is operating at a neighborhood level most likely but can we see these patterns and can we see impacts at a county level or a state level as well um and how do these you know boundaries that we draw how do the processes kind of interact across those boundaries so that was kind of partially to my point of there's so much more research to do, I think, is continuing to investigate. You know, likely there's probably not one answer, but that tension between the place-based versus bigger generalizable findings, I think is a healthy tension and, you know, important to think about both ways. Yes, following Kelsey, I wanna just add that, I believe, uh, actually all of us, we believe that we argue that uh, our work has some methodological contribution to this literature. So regardless of the scale, the method that applied in this research can, is applicable for different scales. So the methodological contribution of this work to the literature is that you can use data in finer scale, for example, a neighborhood scale, and use, and use this or current research as maybe a model or something that will guide you to select different uh, variables, different socioeconomic variables, and use the same uh, method of uh, machine learning uh, unsupervised classif uh, classification. So uh, the only, th I, I mean that the, the result that shows there is a heterogeneity of different pathway of uh, climate gentrification along the East Coast, this is not the only thing that we consider as or contribution to the literature, we think and we argue that the methodology is something that is really applicable in finer scale. And it's applicable not only just in coastal area in the US, it, it's something that can be easily applicable anywhere, uh, not only again in gentrification maybe, I think it's something uh, really useful and helpful to help us to identify the pattern of interaction between human and the nature uh, in different coupled human natural system. Yes, so with that, I actually can add something, the thing like Kelsey already mentioned about the space. So in our 
project, climate gentrification project, we looked at like the entire like I think 52 or 53 counties in the in the coastal US East Coast. So we know like some papers actually work, like some authors worked on only on Miami, but we didn't know much about like other other coastal cities like Charleston or maybe a city in North Carolina, coastal North Carolina or other. So this is a new scope actually. So our clustering clustering paper actually like we have some cities we identified as like the cities are actually gentrifying due to climate change, right? So now the scope has opened for other researchers to look at other cities like Charleston or other cities in the East Coast, right? So this is another contribution for like future research research in this like US East Coast. So yes, thank you, Sharif. And I do really want to point that out because. I think that, you know, and a lot of literature that I've read or during this whole process that I've read have focused on, you know, very specific cities, but they're usually large cities. Um, and one of the things that I can say personally that I have seen a lot, um, and it has been an emerging issue just in academic literature overall, is the focus of the concept of, you know, and, and it's apt that, you know, we choose this podcast called Future Cities, you know, because, you know, typically when people think about, um, you know, future cities, they're thinking about, you know, these, you know, um, global cities, you know, like New York, Washington, D.C., Miami, you know, L.A., Seattle, like these huge cities in terms of like the context of the research and how we can contribute to what you know, a future city would look like under, you know, a different climate scenario or under different scenarios. But I think to your point is that, you know, our research, because we expanded it to include things on the county level, we were able to provide um, data, you know, to these smaller cities, to these smaller coastal regions that are often left behind when it comes into, you know, not only solutions, um, but just in terms of research. Um, and I think that, you know, that is sort of like my, um, what I think that like what we very much contributed to, um, and it can hopefully push other researchers that may be based in larger cities to also look into these smaller areas, these smaller regions that, you know, are very much being impacted, you know, very in some similar, but also different ways you know, to a changing climate and that, you know, these cities or these smaller cities, these medium, small, or these regions need just as much attention, you know, as to the impacts of climate change as the larger cities. Um, and I would say Zainab, like if you wanted to follow up with that. Yeah, I think you pointed the very, very important uh, topic and note that there are a lot of small cities that don't get enough attention and there are not enough resources available for them. And one thing, uh, <laughs> again, I'm so excited about our work. One thing I want to add about our work is uh, the cool thing about this is that we use all free and available, publicly available data and all free, almost, yeah, all free softwares like our uh, software, which is uh, freely available. So hopefully with sharing the codes when the work is uh, published, uh, we hope that it helps empower researchers uh, in smaller city to conduct the same um, analysis 
um, without being limited by the lack of data, being limited by the lack of resources. And so we consider this as a contribution of this work by adding uh, the way that we can use free available data and free softwares. Uh, one important uh, uh, thing I need to add here with the team and also join up that uh, I, I really like that you raised the issue that how uh, we found a difference uh, between the big cities and small cities uh, in terms of coverage in the literature. But when we also reviewed the literature, I found a, a huge difference uh, uh, in terms of uh, coverage uh, between European uh, when, when the literature was focusing on Europe and the United States. And uh, we have uh, a great difference that uh, most of the European literature were, were focusing on class issues. They, they have been focusing on how the negative consequences of climate change are uh, distributed in terms of uh, class categories. But in the United States, most of the literature, we, we found that uh, they, they are focusing on the racial issues. So uh, this uh, experience uh, uh, taught us that race has become an important aspect uh, when we uh, study coupled human nature system in the United States. And uh, uh, from my sociological point of view, I found really interest uh, because race uh, is, is one of the like uh, prime sociological concept in studying like uh, relationship between human and environment. Yes, and I think that you bring up like a really good point, um, especially and what I think about like when you say, you know, especially class versus like race, um, I think about like what we consider who is vulnerable, you know, and how they're vulnerable. Um, and one of the very interesting things that, you know, um, which caused us, because as you mentioned, Asma, through our literature review, we did, you know, have literature that included European cities and um, and like other in other cities around the world, you know, and their focus was primarily, you know, from a, the standpoint of class. Whereas when we started to look at literature from, you know, the U.S., you know, there was a socioeconomic component, but also one of the big issues, like especially in the U.S., was the racial component. And how you know um, policies such as redlining and um, other you know um, racialized form of um, I, as I mentioned as I like to not me but as other people <laughs> just mentioned like institutionalized um, discrimination have produced like this uneven um, effect as that we have like over. Um, when it comes to gentrification and how race and class can be, you know, and policy tools associated with that can contribute to that. Um, and so I guess like what this project did for me was to really focus when I talk about vulnerability to really understand how as not only from a US perspective, but from a world perspective, you know, how basically the questions, how and who is considered vulnerable. Um, and that definitely expanded my perspective on that. And though we did focus on just specifically the US, you know, 
understanding that, you know, from a different context, we may be talking about gentrification, but I cannot come to a, someone in Europe that's focusing on climate gentrification in Barcelona and talking about the racial makeup because there's an entire other set of, you know, histories and, you know, different structures that may be at play and how, you know, my work or the work that we do can inform that, but also how our work can be limited. And so I guess, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask to the group um, and Becca, I would like for you to like talk about this, like how did, you know, this project expand your perspective on, you know, aspects of like vulnerability or how has it changed, you know, um, that not only in the context of this project, but as you continue on, you know, as Dr. Becca Nixon, <laughs> as a postdoc ah. researcher, as you, you know, continue on this, on this road. <laughs> well, as a good doctor, I will say it's complicated, Tim. <laughs> um, but honestly, I think just like any project, it expands and complicates my understanding of vulnerability, right? If, going back again, we keep going back to this interdisciplinary nature of this project, but bringing in all of our understandings of the stressors, especially when looking in the context of the East Coast of the U.S., when we start asking questions of what's driving this, what's driving this stress or this vulnerability, or is vulnerability an outcome of these stressors? Um, I think, honestly, this project is as complicated, and like Kelsey said, it, it drives me to want to ask continued questions of um, what is vulnerability, but then even maybe additionally, what can we do um, to decrease this vulnerability or mitigate the vulnerability, both in the context of um, like space and infrastructure that has been super interesting to think about, um, but also social structures. So I think because this team is so diverse, it expands our understanding of what solutions might be feasible or applicable or appropriate for different contexts. So that's a big rambling question or answer to that question of vulnerability, but overall expanded my understanding of vulnerability and drove me to think about what solutions are exist um, to mitigate that. Great. No, I think that's a very important point. Um, and I'm still like getting on you because you're literally the only one out of all of us right now who's the doctor in the oh, group. Oh, y'all will be joining <laughs> me very shortly. <laughs> hope for the rest of us. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, that light is so small. <laughs> um, but like speaking like to that, you know, I think that, you know, this process um, as a PhD student, now candidate, now, you know, about to die before my dissertation, <laughs> I will ever see the light of day because the stress is getting entirely too much. <laughs> um, one of the things that I would say that has consistently been a theme, like in this process, you know, through my own work, and also very specifically within the context of this project, is what I like to term crossing the line of developmental courage. Because like as a PhD student, or as a PhD candidate, you know, let me say candidate now. <laughs> um, you know, we go through very much, very hard, <laughs> is not even the word to the correct word to use, you know, stages of development. 
Um, and in every single stage that we cross, you know, whether it comes from PhD students to PhD candidate, that there is something where we, you know, take a, I don't know, a leap of faith, you know, and on and we come out on that other side, you know, of it. And we're like, huh, okay, so we can do this. And so, um, and I will start with my um, own experience with that, but I wanted to like ask the group, you know, within the context of either your own PhD, you know, journey, um, and, or, you know, within the context of this project, you know, where would you say, or where do you have a story, you know, where we sort of cross the line of that developmental courage? Um, and I will start specifically within the context of this project. Um, like there was a point in time when we were doing the lit review paper um, that we had, you know, everyone was joining up and everyone was leading, but we kind of had clear um, sort of leads that we were going to start, you know, this person was going to sort of lead this and we were going to get, you know, I had an immense fear <laughs> because I had never written a lit review paper before ever. And I felt extremely uncomfortable sort of like kind of taking this lead and, you know, having, putting myself out there to be extremely vulnerable and be in allowing myself to say, I don't know how to do this. Um, and, you know, and it's sort of, especially being like a first generation, you know, grad student, like in my family, I don't come from, um, you know, a family of people who, you know, have PhDs or even have like um, a college degree. Like I'm the first person who has even a bachelor's degree, like sort of in my family. And to, you know, step into the new space of being a PhD student, now PhD candidate, and not having like anybody to sort of like, other than my advisors to sort of guide me. And then also had to have this step of taking the lead on something that I did not necessarily have the experience in. Um, but, you know, I would say that, you know, in, when I crossed that line of developmental courage, you know, I did it with the help of this group because where I did not feel, you know, necessarily confident in it, um, I had this group like assure that, you know, the things can get done, that we can, if you need help, that we can help you. And that, you know, having this group allowed me to, you know, more easily cross that line of developmental courage such that we were able to complete the lit review paper and were able to submit it, you know, and that, especially for me, that is a big deal, <laughs> you know, because it's speaking to something that I've always envisioned myself doing, but to actually do it was something that um, I've always like told myself that I, you know, could not do. Um, but, you know, I crossed that line of developmental courage and this was like the first project where I'm actually like, okay, all right, I can do this. This is, this is something that can be done. Um, and like having all of you there to help me, you know, do that was, you know, uh, I didn't say just thank you all <laughs> for helping me cross that line of developmental courage. Um, so I guess I open it up to the group, like who wants to join, or who wants to share their thoughts. I think my experience is uh, somehow similar to yours, but I would uh, discuss more about uh, the general leadership skills in a group. 
uh, I consider myself as a some who introvert and uncomfortable to talk in general, in especially in public. And the entire thing, you know, at the beginning, it was very scary to me that uh, similar to you, I just put myself in the position of like, hey, everyone, I want to be, but I need your approval. Like I want the entire team want me to be like a leader and everyone was super supportive and I really appreciate that everyone encouraged me to take this challenge and I truly appreciate that every single of you and it was really a I would say maybe life-changing changing experience for me uh, although it you know this was not some, something that happened during one day but I look at myself two years ago and now I look at myself now Mm, just managing any kind of things like this, organizing something, it's something that looks very natural to me. And I don't feel intimidated. I don't feel, oh my gosh, I will be paralyzed. Or uh, it's it was very, very empowering experience for me. And I would say that it could not be possible if it if you were not there out for me. I really, really owe this to everyone in this group because I felt that uh, the feeling of really, you know, being in a safe environment and being with people that truly support you. And if I did something wrong, or even earlier in this podcast, I really didn't know what to, you know, I didn't, I was not ready to answer one question. My good friend, one of the best friend, Kelsey, jump in and she rescued me like many times that she helped me in many things. So, you know, just knowing that you have some people that are there out for you, they will rooting for you, they will cheering up and they will take care of you. It's, it's really, really important. And it was a great opportunity for me to develop some uh, transferable skills that hopefully will help me later in my career. Yeah, just just uh, add more points. So one of the things I learned is that you can never know everything, right? Like it comes to a missing point where you have to just lay back and learn new skills. So, way. so like the skills I've learned from the review, from all the teamwork, it's really helping me in my own personality. Point. So that's one very big point. Like at one point I felt frustrated, like, oh, maybe I'm not really contributing more. But I'm like, oh, this is a chance for me to sort of lay back and learn. Let me humble myself because you know many people don't have that skills of learning because it's not every time where your skills must be used in in a project at times sometimes you join some teams just to learn so i really sort of like one very big point that really helped me but i've learned so much um, techniques methods how to work in a team how to also like and i've seen awesome leadership from our team leads like how to like there were times when we had uh, other frictions but i saw how they could resolve those frictions and so that was one thing i've learned like humble yourself and then at times you must not be able to contribute, but you can also see it as an opportunity to like learn new things that is going to help you in your career. So that's one very big thing I've learned. And thank you guys so much. Uh, one thing uh, I, I can uh, talk here uh, regarding my experience in working this uh, interdisciplinary group. Say for example, I, I already mentioned that I'm from Bangladesh and uh, which is, uh, uh, I'm from different culture. And uh, a professional culture is totally different uh, in Bangladesh than the United States. And uh, so this group has become a great resource for me. 
uh, and throughout the last uh, more than one years, uh, I have learned how to be professional in in a, in, a, in an interdisciplinary uh, research team, but with uh, uh, support and caring attitude and also sympathy to each other. So, uh, I, uh, as I mentioned, that uh, being a person coming from other culture, I never felt that I'm an outsider of this uh, group. So uh, this is the comfort zone I really experienced in this in this group, uh, taking support, taking advice, and taking uh, 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 assistance from from all of you. And uh, I feel grateful to all of you for all of your uh, cooperation, support, and assistance. From where I think uh, I have learned a great lesson that how to be cooperative and at the same time professional in, in an interdisciplinary group. And if I want to uh, go with my career in the United States in future, after my graduation, I, I feel that uh, this learning will be a great resource uh, for, for me. And thank you so much uh, for all of your support. I don't, um, I don't feel like I have too much to add because everyone has said a lot of what I'm feeling too and said it very well and beautifully. Um, I think, you know, I feel like I've grown a lot as part of this as well. And it's definitely been something that's pushed me out of my comfort zone. And I think pushed me to be more confident and more like kind of own that we are emerging experts in this topic of climate gentrification. And we, you know, are as qualified and competent as anyone else. And that's like a very cool realization for me. It's kind of the anti-imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of that has come from <laughs> the support of everyone here, like others have said, and just this really amazing team. So thank you all. Yeah, so beside like soft and hard skill we learned from this project, we actually like supportive for each other all the time, respectful to each other. So that will help us like in the future, how we can actually work in an interdisciplinary group of people together. So like how to manage a team and, you know, like working together with, with respect and, you know, like respecting each other and, and, and with, with dignity. So, yeah, I think it was a great learning for all of us and that will help us in our future careers. Sometimes I look at what this team has accomplished and I'm I'm really surprised. Like, I'm like, dang, we're productive in the middle of a pandemic, all on Zoom, doing our own projects. And I honestly <laughs> think I would attribute it to what a lot of you have said um, of just how encouraging and supportive the group was. And I think that those are the skills and experiences that you just have to live it out to to understand it. I think we're like told in our classes, like in research and in team meetings, like you need to do interdisciplinary work and talk things out and figure it out. But this enabled us to live it out in a stressful time for the world and for each of us individually. But I honestly think the care and intentionality that everyone gave to each other um, was super important for our process as scientists too. So that was something that I really learned and took away of those relational aspects of a team are really important for our creativity and feeling safe to ask questions and um, develop as scientists. It's been really cool to watch and experience for myself. No, great point, Vika. So we did it actually entirely virtually, right? 
So we did, did it during our like this like COVID-19 situation. So that's up to all of us, right? Yes, and I want to, and I know that I feel like everyone is like beating a dead horse, but it's, it was a worldwide pandemic. Like, let's be honest, right? Like what we decided to set out to do, our entire plans on what we, and I know we're not alone in this, many research teams I've also had to, but it is not, it cannot be said enough, like to the impact, not only psychologically, but logistically, you know, what it means to conduct, intentionally, intentionally conduct research on a topic when everything that had been set up for you and succinct has been so supportive during this entire time, but still to be able to take this and to be able to continue on with it and to continue to understand that the importance of this work, you know, um, to, you know, even within the context of a pandemic, you know, and, you know, some of that stuff can be even influenced by a pandemic. I know that some of the stuff that we talked about was, you know, we were like, well, let's think about this because I had time over the pandemic to, <laughs> to, to think about this. <laughs> um, but yes, but no, definitely. Um, but I'm just gonna close this up. Again, thank you everyone, you know, for our team to join in on this, you know, amazing podcast that we're, you know, um, we're so grateful to be a part of. Um, and yeah, I guess that, you know, we can go on about our days and continue trudging <laughs> along, trying to be a doctor like <laughs> Dr. Nisa here, you know? <laughs> rough, let me tell you. <laughs> thank you for leading our conversation and, and thank you all for all of this. Yeah, it feels great. Thank you. All. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Les. The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network or UREX, as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.